Hello, I'm Professor Randall Peterson, and you're listening to the podcast, How Do You Perceive the Future? This is part of our leadership series in which we'll be exploring the big issues facing leaders today and asking what it takes to stand out from the crowd and leave a real impact on the way the world does business. At London Business School, we believe that being a great leader is about executing your vision, not about being a version of someone else. Join us as we hear from leaders who dared to break the mold. You can see more of our leadership insights or browse our portfolio of leadership programs by visiting london.edu slash lbs hyphen leadership. You'll hear a conversation with my colleague, Viola Rollins, Executive Director of the Leadership Institute, and her guest speaker, Donald Crilly, Associate Professor of Strategy and Leadership at London Business School. In this episode, the focus is on time. Specifically, we look at how corporate leaders' perception of time influences important decisions and outcomes that relate to sustainability and positive social change. Let's hear the conversation. Donald. Delighted to have you as a guest. Thank you for making time to join us. Thank you, Viola, for having me on your podcast. So, Donald, I've read a number of your research studies, which I've found extremely interesting. And given the depth and breadth of your research, today I'd like to get you to describe some key concepts for our listeners that will help boost their effectiveness in strategy formulation and execution, and also reap benefits for the quote-unquote greater good. So to get us started, why don't you introduce us to the concept of intertemporal choice and what led you to become interested in it? Well, Viola, choice is intertemporal when we face a decision between a reward today and an oftentimes bigger reward in the future. So all of us make these kinds of choices daily. Do we eat the sugary snack that will give us the pleasure now, or do we forgo that snack in the hope of better health in the future? Do we spend our income on a great holiday this year, or do we save it investing for hopefully a happier retirement? Now, corporate leaders make similar kinds of choices. Do they prioritize quarterly earnings, or do they invest in long-term research and development projects? And in essence, there's often this dilemma between sacrificing rewards today for greater rewards in the future. If you want to be seen to perform well today, well, you can cut back those investments that are costly and disruptive today, but that would pay off in the future. And I said, why am I actually interested in this theme? I began my career in Germany working for a Japanese firm, and I've also worked extensively in Japan as well. And what's interesting is that in both Germany and Japan, business people are on average more long-term oriented than business people in the United States, the UK, and other Anglo-Saxon countries. One reason for that is that both countries have a long history of what we call patient capital. That is to say, investors who have an interest in long-term returns and have an interest in firms remaining healthy over the long run. But the other reason for this interest is, or interest in myopia, is that how we make these intertemporal choices matters not only for financial decisions, but it actually matters for social value as well. So many of the challenges facing companies these days 
also have a similar kind of dilemma between the short and the long run. So you can think of climate change as an example. Okay, so whether we make sacrifices today, for example, whether we go frivolous consumption, can influence how bearable the climate will be that we will have tomorrow. So this reveals an intertemporal, if not even an intergenerational dimension to some of the grand challenges we face. The decisions we make today, how we live today, ultimately influence those opportunities for future generations. Super. So at a very basic level, it's it's about trade-offs. Is that fair to say? Indeed, it is precisely about this dilemma, the trade-off between doing well today, performing well today, and doing well in the future, performing well in the future. Now, Donald, say a bit more about the selection of rewards, because again, one of the things I found interesting about your research is that you also talk about the size of the trade-offs or the size of the rewards, and that potentially making choices around rewards that are too simplistic could potentially damage long-term value? Well, so the central idea is that managers of publicly listed companies are often concerned about short-term stock market returns. They're concerned about the financial dimensions rather than the social dimensions. But what's worrying is that this concern on the financial may lead them to neglect social value. They may neglect you know, the environment, they may neglect employees whose contributions are critical for the long-term viability of the firm. And in this recent study that we have, we look at the effect of capital market pressure on employee safety. A lot of studies show, of course, that keeping employees safe at work is critical to firms' long-term success. After all, who's gonna to wanna to work for a company that puts you in danger, okay? Absolutely, you wanna work for a company that treats you with respect, that keeps you safe. But the problem is that securing employee safety is also an intertemporal problem. Why? Well, because it is exceedingly tempting for managers to increase workloads on employees. You expect them to produce more. And at the same time, it's tempting to reduce expenditure on maintaining machinery to keep it operating well, to keep it operating safely. So actually this is, a, you know, this seems like an easy win for uh, corporate executives because they can easily hit quarterly earnings targets by increasing output, by reducing safety expenses. But over the longer term, what we find is that employees suffer from burnout. So they, you know, become overly exhausted and they're more likely to be injured, okay? So either because they're overworked or because the machinery that they're using is simply unsafe. Now, this is indeed what you know we find in this study. In the United States, there was a very interesting experiment by the Securities and Exchange Commission about 15 years ago. So this commission actually decided to reduce financial deregulation on some companies, but not others. Okay, so specifically, investors were now permitted to short the stock of some companies. Now, shorting in simple terms means that investors take bets against companies. They essentially borrow stock that they don't own. They sell it in the hope that the stock price will decrease. Shorting stock is really important in 
allowing market efficiency because not only do you have the voices of those who buy the stock, but you also have the voices of those who are deeply negative about certain companies. But the problem is that it puts managers under a lot of pressure. It puts them under pressure because the stock price can fall quite dramatically. And indeed, in this particular study, we find that those companies that were affected by deregulation, by more short selling, did indeed increase targets on their workers. They did indeed decrease maintenance and injuries increased by about 10% within two years. This is fascinating. And what especially engages me about your research, Donald, is you're really illustrating that issues around executing for sustainability or strategy execution aren't binary activities. It calls for the need for organizations and leaders to think systemically about their short and long-term decisions and how they'll work together to influence what they're actually trying to achieve. Indeed, and it, it's important then that leaders become aware of these tensions and the trade-offs, because in that particular study where we show that employees are more likely to be injured as corporate leaders reduce safety uh, expenditure, what's also interesting there is those companies actually perform really well in the short term. Those companies that have more injuries benefit from an increase in their stock price for one or two years. But what happens later? Well, precisely after four or five years, they suffer from a decreasing stock price. They suffer from a decrease in their accounting performance as well. So as a corporate leader, I think part of your task, part of the challenge facing you is to communicate to your stakeholders, to communicate to the market that actually you're making some tough choices today. You may not hit your quarterly earnings target, but that is because you're pursuing the long-term viability of the firm. And it's making that tension trade-off explicit to those around you. Right. Now, I, I will come back to this notion of how you communicate what you're doing to uh, the external world. But I, I would like to ask a question before I go there first. I'm curious to know if you feel that internal and external stakeholders really have the power to influence short-termist organizational responses to capital market pressures? Well, that's interesting that, that you ask that because earlier I mentioned that capital in Germany and Japan is patient. That's to say investors in Germany and Japan are assumed to be long-term oriented, whereas those equity investors here in the UK or in the United States are myopic. But actually, that is a gross oversimplification. And often managers here actually do assume that shareholders want short-term returns. But the interesting thing is precisely as you, you imply that under some conditions, shareholders can become quite active in changing the myopia, in attenuating or tempering the short-term bias of management. And what's interesting is that often the CEO of many large UK, US companies will say, I am managing for shareholders and almost uses this as a cover for focus on short-term earnings. So the result is that managers act short-termist because they have this get-out clause saying, I'm managing for shareholders. But the reality is 
that not all shareholders, not all investors, not all stakeholders are alike. Many investors, and these include, by the way, the really critical institutional investors, often have quite a long-term perspective. I mean, they're, they're making dedicated investments in firms, and they're not going to change their holdings simply because of a blip in earnings. Uh, what we find, actually, interestingly, is that the same exists with even people like financial analysts. So these are people who issue you know, earnings forecasts. And it's critical, of course, for you as a CEO to meet these quarterly earnings forecasts because otherwise the market reaction can be quite negative. But there are some analysts who do influence firms to take a longer-term perspective. So these are the analysts who issue long-term earnings forecasts and they're not necessarily overly sensitive to short-term results. These you know, probably have a better understanding of how investment or a cut in investment, for example, by reducing safety expenditure could actually affect positively or negatively long-term growth. So actually, there is the potential for long-term oriented investors, long-term oriented analysts, and of course, labor unions as well, to correct managerial myopia. And that is important because we often say that managers are short-term oriented or long-term oriented in some particular contexts. But I think what, what, what I'd like to emphasize is that it's not only the role of managers, it's not only the role of corporate leaders, but it's also part of the system in which they're working. The investors they're able to attract, the analysts who are covering these firms. We cannot you know, expect leaders themselves to shoulder this burden. Yes, and I and I think it's fair to say we've seen an increase over the past, I don't know, five to twelve years in different stakeholder constituents coming together to actually help encourage uh, boards mainly to, to think differently about, about investment decisions. Precisely. And what's interesting there is that we find coalitions of investors, typically activist investors who may be pursuing social and environmental goals, often collaborating actually with institutional investors who are looking for long-term financial returns. And it's these coalitions of the socially-minded and the financially-minded investors who, working together, can often shape executives to focus on the longer term. Now, I'd like to move on to some other research that you've co-authored, Donald. There's another concept that you talk about that's captured my attention and touches on the important, what I describe as intersectionality between strategy and leadership, which you've alluded to earlier. So can you tell us a bit more about what ego-moving and time-moving frames are and how these different modes of framing work for leaders when they envision and talk about the future? Absolutely. So, so the question is, how do we perceive the future? Because the future is not something that we see. It's not something that we can touch. So in order to make sense of this intangible thing called the future, we want to make it more concrete. And the way we do that is by thinking about and speaking about the future in terms of the physical reality of space and motion. Now, let me make this clear to you. If I give you a question, 
Next week's meeting, originally scheduled for Wednesday, is moved forward two days. On which day will it take place? So that sounds like a very simple question with a very simple answer. But actually, there are two answers. Okay, There are two equally legitimate answers. Half of people will answer Monday and half of people will answer Friday. And your answer will help me understand how actually you interpret the future. If you use a so-called time-moving frame, you perceive time as moving forward and it's moving closer towards you. So often we speak about deadlines are approaching, uh, festivities are approaching, my retirement is approaching. So the future is actually coming closer towards you. And in terms of the question I asked about the meeting, if the future is coming towards you and the meeting is moved two days forward, that means you're going to answer Monday. So you've got a time-moving frame. But some people use the so-called ego-moving frame. In this case, you're moving towards the future. So you are approaching retirement. You are approaching a particular deadline. You're the one in control. And what's interesting here is that in this so-called ego-moving frame, when you hear the terms moving forward, actually you're moving forward as well. So the meeting is moved two days ahead from Wednesday to Friday. Now, we use these different ways of speaking all the time in our speech. Okay? We talk about events approaching. We are making progress. And it may seem almost like an academic distinction, but it really, it really does matter. Because you know, my research shows that the time-moving frame, so that's the sense that the future is approaching, makes us take the future more seriously. And you may think, well, why? And it's because in this so-called time-moving frame, the future is encroaching. Essentially, it's coming whether you like it or not. So if you hear that your retirement is approaching, it's really encroaching on you. You've got no choice but to prepare. But on the other hand, if you think that you're approaching retirement, well, you're in control. So frankly, you can slow down, okay? That distant future may take some time for you to reach. And what I found is that the time-moving frame really does encourage decision makers to opt for long-term strategies in business, okay? They view future returns as quite important, whereas if you've got this ego-moving frame, Speaking about the future in such a way makes the future appear very distant. And what's even more interesting is that this also applies to these kind of social and environmental decisions I spoke about before. Because if you frame the social or environmental issue using a time-moving frame, you actually motivate greater commitment to tackle the issue. So some studies I show that describing climate change using a time-moving frame, so for example, an era of climate change is approaching, encourages people or makes people at least say that they would pay higher taxes on polluting activities, that they would forgo consumption much more readily than if you use an ego-moving frame. So we are approaching an era of climate change, for example. So in short, these are you know the ways we speak about the future naturally, ego-moving, time-moving, but we can also use them judiciously, almost strategically, not only to get ourselves to think in different ways and take the future more seriously, but also to get our colleagues, our peers to do the same. Yes, and what what's 
come to mind as I've listened to you describe this, Donald, is how this might play out in situations where you have executive teams who are from different national cultures or boards comprised of individuals from different national cultures. Because we know through the work of Hofstetter, Trumpenaus, and even Professor Randall Peterson here at London Business School, that different cultures look at time in, in different ways. So I can't not think if these distinctions that you're talking about aren't surfaced, that it could cause some interesting assumptions or even conflict within teams who are, who are thinking about uh, devising and executing strategies. That is an excellent point because I have analyzed Japanese language, German language, and uh, Mandarin language documents, for example, annual reports of companies, quarterly uh, earnings calls with analysts. What's interesting is all of these different frames exist in the different languages. So even the Japanese can talk about the future approaching or, you know, we're approaching the future, but they use the different frames to different degrees than native speakers of English. So native speakers of English are more likely at least in the corporate setting, to use very agentic forms of language. You know, you don't want to say, you know, the deadline for making the decision is approaching, but we're, you know, you're in charge, so we're approaching the deadline. But in Chinese documents, for example, they are about six times as likely as in United States corporate documents to use this time moving frame, the sense of the future is approaching. So that's, that's important. Firstly, it's the sense that these frames are used to differing degrees across countries, and especially in Anglo-Saxon countries, English-speaking countries, people typically emphasize, perhaps overemphasize, this agentic view of time. But there are other interesting differences here too, Vaila. For example, you may know that Japanese and Chinese lack a future tense altogether. And in German, well, there is a future tense in German, but more often than not, when Germans are describing what they're going to do in the future, they end up using the present tense. This is another fascinating finding from work, not my own, but languages that lack a future tense typically have their speakers take the future more seriously. And that sounds really counterintuitive, but actually, if you don't demarcate the future and the present in your speech, as Japanese executives don't, as Chinese-speaking executives don't, then by nature, the future isn't this other period of time. The future and the present almost fuse together into one. It's really important because we also find that, again, controlling for everything else Simply having a company that is headquartered in a country that is, where the dominant language does not have a future tense or where people often end up using the present to describe the future, these companies actually have higher levels of social and environmental responsibility. Wow, this is great. I feel another podcast coming on, Donald. But um, I think given what you've just said, that's a nice transition to something I'd like you to, again, talk a bit more about in terms of your research work. And it's about this construct of language and how people use language. In fact, you've done a research study on how stakeholders can be misled by firms simply by how they articulate their challenges. 
And the specific study, I believe you did this on, focused on how firms talk to stakeholders about their sustainability efforts. Now, as a leadership practitioner, I'm always encouraging leaders to simplify <laughs> their language. But your research is suggesting that using, quote-unquote, more complex styles of language can actually help increase understanding and commitments relating to sustainability. So can you say a bit more about this? Absolutely. So let me be clear. Simple language is usually great, but the specific problem comes when leaders make simplistic or overarching statements relating to social responsibility or social purpose. So we take, for example, you know, one of the largest UK banks explicitly talks about delivering value to all our stakeholders. So that is our obligation. We have to deliver value to all our stakeholders. And in fact, it's a common catchphrase that executives and other companies will use as well. Something about we are responsible to our shareholders and our employees and our communities and our suppliers, essentially everybody on the planet. And that sounds great. It's a very inclusive form of language. It makes people feel very good. But it's also a very all-encompassing statement that suggests perhaps the executives haven't really thought clearly about the issue at hand. You know, are there some stakeholders that are perhaps more important? Are all stakeholders necessarily equal? And in fact, we've examined these sustainability and responsibility statements of major corporations in Europe as well as in the United States, and we've linked the style of statement to actual practices. So do the corporations really change their practices to make them more sustainable, you know, in accordance with the content of their statements? And in actual fact, what we find is that the more all-encompassing the statement, typically the less substance there lies behind it. Because companies invariably don't have as their purpose to serve everyone. And if you don't know who your critical stakeholders are, whom you're most responsible to, that's a problem. So instead of saying we are delivering value or we have to deliver value to all our stakeholders, often what you'll find is those executives, those leaders who take the sustainability challenge more seriously, actually have quite nuanced or bounded understandings of what their actual responsibility is. And I'm thinking of a chemical executive in particular, you know, he doesn't state so much about what his responsibility as leader of a chemicals company is, but he actually states what it's not. You know, it's very important, he said, to state that it's not a giveaway thing. So it's a contribution, but within a particular sphere of influence. I remember he said also that we're selling chemicals. That's our business. We're not selling human rights. We're not selling environmental solutions. And in fact, one thing that's interesting in the deception studies that some psychologists have conducted, the more often you use not in an answer, the more likely it is you're probably telling the truth. And the, the almost the nicer, the more inclusive language you use it could be that you're actually being deceptive because often you're telling people what they want to hear. You know, that's, that's the core of the issue here. You know, to go back to this issue of time and the importance of the future, you might think then that also speaking a lot about the future is a sign of taking these future sustainability commitments seriously. But again, nothing could be further from the truth because talking about the future does not mean that you're doing it. So if you ask leaders about sustainability, 
those who actually are implementing sustainable practices, who are changing the way their companies operate, are much more likely to use the past tense. Why? Well, it's because they have this concrete experience that they can draw on, that they can describe. So in contrast, those who do very little actually end up speaking about the future because it is easy to communicate good intentions, respective of what you're actually doing today. So in short, yes, simple language, clear language is usually a good thing, but simplistic language that suggests you're going to be nice to everybody just doesn't cut it. And at the same time, it's very easy to make cheap promises by speaking a lot about this distant future. Grounding it in the present and in the past actions you've done suggests, well, maybe you've thought about this issue and you're actually doing something already about it. That's really, really helpful. Now, let me just shift a bit and talk about the issue of emotional engagement <laughs> in terms of your research and your teaching. Now, in my experience, if a leader wants to be a future shaper and achieve, for example, sustainability efforts, or in fact, any positive change in, inside or outside their organization, they must frame the future in a way that resonates emotionally with those who will be a part uh, or be impacted by the change. Do you have any, any reflections on that? Absolutely. And uh, you know, I think already your sense that leaders have to resonate emotionally really hits the nail on the head because the common wisdom so far is very much that the so-called future shapers are, are those who sell the vision by convincing people of a certain future state of reality. So you can think of Elon Musk and his vision for space travel, for electric transportation. But the important thing is precisely that persuading others isn't only about convincing them what the future is going to look like, but it's about actually energizing them to act today, to recognize these tensions and act even if it means making some kind of sacrifice or living with uncertainty. So this is often actually about empowering people, okay? So giving your employees, giving even your suppliers some kind of sense or feeling that, yes, they can make a difference, okay? So this future is important. It could be challenging, but actually we can live productively with it. But critically, that's not enough because if you feel empowered, actually the risk is precisely that you procrastinate, you postpone action because you don't feel very threatened. Think back to what I said before about this ego-moving frame. You're in the driving seat, you're in control. It's easy to view you know, some of these pressing problems as actually quite distant. So actually, you, as a leader, I think you really need to convey to your peers, to your employees, that the future is encroaching, right? This is what we refer to as presencing. It's about contracting these temporal horizons so that you really activate emotions. And not only, importantly, not only positive emotions, but also negative emotions. For example, you activate in people the fear of doing nothing. So you want to articulate this sense that the future is coming very fast, that it is a reality that's going to hit you sooner rather than later. And, you know, Musk, whom I mentioned before, is, is great at this because he really is adept at sketching this future vision, this big picture that gives people, you know, a sense of hope or optimism. But what's interesting is he also goes into really concrete details that make people 
able to imagine the future on their doorstep. So when he talked about building a new gigafactory where he can make these massive batteries recently, he actually talks about the site that he selected and he describes it not as something that's going to exist in 15 years time, but he talks about the butterflies that are flying over the streams beside where the factory is going to be located. He paints a picture in such detail. And this sense of giving the concrete detail about the future is critical for a rising commitment when you're dealing with these long-term problems. It's not only about empowering, but it's also about presence and giving a sense of this future will come whether we like it or not. Absolutely. And I, picking up on something you alluded to earlier, in my experience as a, a change practitioner, it also involves not being afraid to to give the issue to employees or even broader stakeholders to work. I think a lot of leaders, again, get trapped in this notion of I have to convince people, you know, I have to articulate this in a way that, you know, really energizes and engages them. Yes, that's a part of it, but you can also give them a challenge, say, this is what we face, you know, as an organization, and let's co-create some ideas on how we might address this as an organization. Precisely. In fact, this is what we refer to as cascaded control versus autonomy. So often when you have these really important social and environmental challenges, the leader feels a responsibility to find the solution herself or himself. But often it's employees who are working on the front line, often across very different contexts, who come up with solutions themselves. So it's almost about letting go, okay? So not always viewing yourself as in complete control, but relying on other people, giving them the autonomy, setting the context where they have the confidence to make appropriate decisions themselves. These are often the people, by the way, who are interfacing directly with the stakeholders who are directly concerned by some of these important corporate impacts. But they're also the people who are you know, interfacing with potential customers as well. So these are the people who have to be, you know, you really have to tap into their abilities where possible. So you really are almost shaping the future or giving people a sense of being able to cope with these challenges themselves rather than necessarily dictating the solution. Right. And I and I'd also say to listeners who might be a bit wary about the notion of, you know giving the problem to employees and having them address it. There are many well-tested practices out there, uh, well-tested processes that allow you to co-create with employees, with stakeholders around addressing key and critical business issues. Well, Donald, we will have to draw to a close, but I'm curious, if our listeners have been inspired by our conversation, and I have to say I have been, what would you say are the biggest takeaways or follow-ups they should try and enact or extract from our conversation to be the kind of leader that creates long-term value? Gosh, so there is clearly no one-size-fits-all solution. There very, very rarely is. I think for for some people, it's ultimately about recognizing these trade-offs you make yourself or you make others aware of the tension between what is 
expedient and maybe what's beneficial over the longer term. For some people, I think that's going to be sufficient. But that's not how most of us work. And I think there are actually more subtle ways of changing how we react to these trade-offs between focusing excessively on what we need to do today, what we want to achieve, and and some of these longer-term decisions we ought to take. And I think you know, a very simple piece of advice is to go out at night and look at the stars to the extent we're able to, at least here in London. And there are two reasons for that. One, by looking at the night sky, I think you really grasp the immensity of the universe, the scale of the universe. Daily pressures, guys, okay, so all of these concerns about deadlines, short-term targets dissipate. But the second reason for looking at the night sky is that this big picture reminds you that you're not in control of time. Okay, So remember, viewing yourself in control of the future can lead to procrastination. But once you see this night sky, you remember, well, the future is heading your way, whether you like it or not. Super thought to end on, Donald. Thank you. A very enlightening conversation. Thank you for listening to the LBS Leadership Podcast. You can discover more original thinking on leadershipatlondon.edu slash LBS hyphen leadership. 